The reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 6 and going all the way to the end of chapter 3. And that is on page 807 of the Red Pew Bibles. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received a spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you were still not ready. You were still world, world, worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom, through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to it his to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. 
Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. All right, before we look at this passage in 1 Corinthians, let's pray and see if we can make sense of it and obey it. Lord God, thank you for this time now we have to think about your word. Thank you for giving us uh, these insights that we can uh, live lives where we come to know more of you and understand how you call us to live as your people. We pray that you'd help us to appreciate this um, message in 1 Corinthians now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, from time to time in uh, cartoon comic strips, you notice that characters get a little speech bubble above their head, and every now and again when they have an idea, that speech bubble is filled with a light bulb, a yellow bright one, to show that they've had an idea. Unless, of course, the character isn't that bright, like I saw in one Garfield comic, Odie the dog, uh, he wasn't real bright, so he got a candle instead of a, a light bulb on his. But I had a light bulb kind of a moment uh, a few years ago when I was uh, sitting in some lecture theatres uh, taking notes or trying to and thinking that the lecturers always used very bad quality chalk or they just didn't press very hard on the chalkboard. And then a funny thing happened when they used their whiteboard markers as well. I always thought they bought brummy ones, that they were very cheap and running out of ink, so that whenever they used them, they weren't very clear. And I sort of muttered about this to the people sitting next to me, complaining, can't they get another whiteboard marker that works? And a girl next to me said, try these. And she passed to me some glasses. <laughs> and I had a light bulb kind of moment. It wasn't... The chalk suddenly got better quality and I could actually see the whiteboard markers and I was shocked. I thought, gee, the problem's me, it's my vision, it's not the, not the lecturers after all. I felt a bit stupid about that, but anyway, that was one of those light bulb kind of a moments. But today in this passage, Paul gives us a, a bit of a light bulb kind of a moment as well. It's far more important than just uh, seeing a whiteboard or a chalkboard. Uh, Paul talks about looking at the world and understanding it either through worldly wisdom and through worldly glasses or, or looking at it through God's glasses, seeing the world from God's wisdom and that point of view. And the first point in the outline is that we, we see that we have a true message of wisdom and it's about a true hope, a real hope that we have. What we've noticed in 1 Corinthians is Paul's been uh, defending uh, his ministry. He says that he didn't come to the Corinthians with eloquence or superior wisdom when he proclaimed to them the testimony about God. Instead, he came in some uh, trembling and with much weakness and fear. And he goes on to say in 2 verse 4 that his message and preaching weren't with wise and persuasive words. It seems that in Greek culture there were people who 
uh, like even today you can have people doing the, the speaking tours that try to, um, you know, take your money or sell something. Uh, in those days people were called sophists and they were eloquent in their speaking. Even at things like the Olympic Games, they didn't just have sporting events, they might have had public speaking competitions as well. And so some of these people seem to have joined the church since Paul's gone away. Paul's been away from the church at Corinth for about three years now. And as we read this letter, there's, there's little insights that you can see that someone else is building on the foundation that he laid. But what some of these people might be doing is knocking uh, and laughing at the way Paul came, his trembling and weakness, uh, and saying that he, he wasn't very impressive. He wasn't very eloquent. He didn't have wisdom in his message and he didn't have eloquence in his speech. And so it's with that kind of background that Paul begins to defend the integrity of what he had to say uh, and how he had to say it. And so we pick it up today in chapter 2, verse 6. If you'd like to read on with me, 2, verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And so the first point really is that God has been a great preparer. He's prepared for our glory before time began. And that work has centred on the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 30. Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. The picture we get of ourselves from the Bible is of being a bit like um, sheep. Lost sheep who have gone astray uh, but have been found by the good shepherd that he's called us and he's brought us back to himself that we might enjoy living in this new relationship with God where we call God our Father. It's a, it's a covenant relationship. Like I tell the kids at youth group, this ring on my finger represents the fact that there was a girl a few years ago who was not part of my family but who is now part of my family and I treat her as family. We're in a covenant relationship uh, and that's how we treat God. We're in family with him. We call God our Father in heaven. And that plan of God was destined before time began. Paul describes that future, that hope that we uh, as Christians look forward to, as something that is indescribable when he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And it's this kind of message which marks out Christians with a hope uh, that is far different to the non-Christian world that we live in, where people see life as one thing after another, uh, but there's no real hope in the way that this passage speaks about but how is it that we can secure such a hope? Well, Paul says that it's a strange message. The, uh, the rulers of this age didn't understand that God was going to visit the earth and that he was going to take upon the sins of the world in the person of Jesus. They didn't think that message up. Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, the high priest, Herod Antipas didn't anticipate that this is the way that God would actually secure our future hope. 
And he tells that if they did understand it, they probably wouldn't have crucified Jesus. They wouldn't have killed the Lord of glory. But Paul's got this message to preach. And it's one that is a strange message, if you think about it long enough, that somehow a Jew entering history would be crucified, and that is the turning point in history that secures us getting right with God. It's a, it is a message that we wouldn't have necessarily thought up of to uh, save the world if it was down to us. And so when he goes to speak about it in, in Corinth, people would have raised their eyebrows. They would have had those sort of glancing looks at each other as if to say, you know, what's this guy going on about? And they might have considered that he was wasting their time offering them such rubbish in comparison to the wisdom speakers of their time. And even talking about the crucifixion was something that wasn't really done in polite company. Uh, we get a bit desensitised to the crucifix because we wear it around our necks and things, or some people do, for jewellery. But if, you know, those people were wearing, you know, something like a syringe with a lethal injection around their neck, you'd think that was a bit, bit out of bad taste. Or someone with a, an electric chair hanging around their neck. Those kinds of things. That's what the cross was like in those days. It'd be like if you went to a party uh, and someone started talking loudly about seeing a dead dog eaten by rats in the street. You'd think, oh, that's just off. That's, you don't want to talk about that. Well, that's the kind of thing that Paul had to bring to the attention of these people when he spoke about the cross and Christ. And so in some ways it's no wonder that he, he went in fear and trembling. And yet that news, which looks so, in some ways, in a, from a worldly point of view, weak and pathetic, turns out to be God's secret wisdom that was hidden from ages before but has now been revealed in these last times. And that's the key to our future with God. People still look for hope, don't they? They still get confused about the Christian message. They still misunderstand what God has done for us in Christ. And they look for things and hope in things apart from the cross. Uh, recently I read the uh, Sydney Morning Herald and I saw Hugh Mackay. Hugh Mackay is a social commentator. Uh, he's not a Christian guy. But he spoke at a conference entitled Happiness and Its Causes. People want to... They want hope. They want happiness. And there's no shame in wanting hope and happiness. It's just where do you look to find it? Well, these people, have some of them have hung their hope on uh, some scientific research. Listen to this. At an American university, the Positive Emotions and Psychophysiology Lab has made this breakthrough. Scientific research had shown a precise ratio of three positives to one negative emotion was needed to tip your life to flourishing. There we go. It's that simple. If you want to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, as sometimes people say, you get your three positive emotions to every one negative one, you'll be tipping the balance to, to flourishing. The trouble is, it sounds a little bit like a quick fix, doesn't it? Because we know that life's uh, not always that simple at all. And the fact is, we can't run away from God. As his creatures, we still need to do business with God uh, and come to terms with the, with the fact that he is creator and we are creatures and there's a break between us that we need forgiveness. And so even if we had 1,000 positive emotions to every one negative one, that's still not going to do the trick to sort out our problem with God. We need God's wise solution and that wise solution was revealed to Paul by the Spirit of God. We see that in verse 10. 
2 verse 10. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? He's saying, if people want to do a party trick like do some mind reading, well, it's really not going to work. Uh, if someone wants to find out uh, you know, the, the password to your keycard's bank account, they can't read your mind and know your mind and, and figure it out. That's why those things are given. The trouble is, I suppose, sometimes we can't remember our passwords as well. But that's a little aside. Uh, the point here is that we can't know someone unless they make themselves known. And we can't know God unless God makes himself known. We see that in 2 verse 11. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Paul goes to say about himself and the other apostles, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so Paul tells us that what God has freely given to him by the Spirit, he then passes on. He says that the person who doesn't have the Spirit of God can't accept these spiritual truths. It's like speaking in Spanish to them. It's confusing. But he's saying this person with the Spirit can accept these truths that are coming from the Word of God. Uh, and because they can, they make all kinds of judgments about life and, and come to understand life from God's point of view. And so it's in that respect, I'll say that again, it's in that respect that they, uh, they're not really subject to anyone else's judgment. Paul says... We have the mind of Christ. I think he's talking supremely about him and the other apostles. They've received this from Revelation and they're giving it to other people. But in some ways, it's a, a derivative thing is also true, isn't it? We also have the Spirit of God. We've believed these words that Paul's written down. We accept them because the Spirit of God's working in us too. And that's why we listen to this message this morning. And so at this point, we need to remember that there's always going to be some confusion with us and the rest of the world. Uh, we're seeing things from God's point of view, from God's wisdom. People won't see things the way that we do always. And so if there's some breakdown in communication with us and non-Christians about how we think the world should work or the values that we think are important, we should accept that that confusion is going to be there because it says the person without experience Without the Spirit, cannot accept these things. He can't understand them. One commentator described this as like being uh, in an orchestra situation where we're watching the orchestra and we can get the flow of the music and understand you know, what's come before and what's sort of coming next and you can actually get into the rhythm of it. Uh, we can do that. But if we were sitting there with a group of other people who are tone deaf, we'd be thinking, oh, this is a great symphony orchestra and they'd be people who couldn't necessarily appreciate that. Sometimes people are tone deaf and they can't 
really appreciate that sort of symphony. If we go back to that illustration I started with, it's like looking at the blackboard without that pair of glasses needed to make clear what's there. Once we see things from God's point of view, we see the world in a different kind of light. Things become clearer. Um, but if we don't see things from God's point of view, it's one thing after another and all very confusing. Well, Paul's mentioned that the mature person accepts the things that are from God, the spiritual person. But he's unable, unfortunately, to think of the Corinthians as spiritual. For they're looking uh, at men and the importance of men in comparison to God who does the life-changing. And they're making the mistakes of getting into factions. So Paul tells them that in chapter 3 he couldn't address them as spiritual because they're not thinking the right way about God and they're not thinking about the right way about God's servants. Just to be sure, he's not saying that there are, these are the natural person who doesn't have the spirit. He accepts that they're part of the church and they do have the spirit. But he doesn't seem to think of them as the mature, as in 2 verse 6, and perhaps the spiritual which we saw in 13 and 15. And so in this section he seeks to redirect their thinking and say, you know, let's, let's start thinking the way that God wants us to think about God and his people. I'll pick it up in chapter 3, verse 5. What, after all, is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And so Paul's taking an image from agriculture, and he's into the farming scene, and he's saying he's like the person who planted the seed, and Paulus is like the one who's watered it. But he's saying those people aren't really worth following after. They're only people. Uh, and it's God who is the one who gives the growth. God changes hearts and brings people into the church. He still has an authority here because it, describing himself as a servant, a servant's always had a master they were responsible to, and Paul's not so much accountable to the Corinthians, he's accountable to God. But he's focusing on the fact that uh, God is the one who gives the growth. God is, God is the key, and it's, it's actually worldly, silly to uh, put your hope in men. We can't even change our own hearts. We can't change, I can't change my wife's heart or my kids. It's only God who can actually do the trick. And so Paul's saying uh, spiritual wisdom is going to be looking past merely following after men. Spiritual wisdom is about putting our hope and trust in God alone. The next thing Paul goes on to speak about is true wisdom in building God's church. And the reason why he seems to put this passage in here is because he's letting them know that they're important. He's uh, a long way away. He's three years ago that, that he was at the church. And since that time, somebody else is coming in and they're building on what he's done. And he's concerned about the church. And so we have this passage where Paul gives a warning about how people should build. He does expect people will build on the foundation he's laid. Uh, we know that from Ephesians chapter 4, God's given people to uh, build up 
the Christians so they can all build each other up together. So, you know, building up the church is every person's job. But he does mention some specific things to say how this should happen. And the first thing is, no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The fact is, we can't build a foundation of Mary. We can't say that we can come to God through Mary. That's somehow a foundation that needs to be in place. We can't lay a foundation of good works, that somehow we've got to do faith in Jesus plus good works to climb into heaven as the way to get right with God. Those aren't options. It's only The only foundation is Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes and reminds us that we build in the right way. In 3 verse 10 he says, But each one should be careful how he builds. If any man builds on this foundation, this is 3 verse 12, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And he's talking about the judgment day there, saying, are you building with rubbish or are you building with quality? And so think about your own life now uh, with respect to our church. How are you going with your building? Are you faithful in uh, praying for each other? Are you faithful in meeting up and seeking to uh, strengthen your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you teaching the right things from the word of God? These are the challenges for us as Christians to build the right way. I know at youth group, I've been in town long enough to see that youth groups can often be about just having good fun and games. And I've, I've sort of seen a bit of that over time. And there's no shame in having fun and games. I quite enjoy them myself. Uh, but if I was only to turn up to youth group with my other youth group leaders and we only did games the whole time, I don't think that would be the right kind of building that God would want, do you? I think it's more important for us to spend some of the time with the kids continuing to get a developing idea of the of the truths that God wants us to hold on to from his word and to spend time praying with each other together. And so building with the right kind of materials is important to really strengthen God's church. Well, finally, uh, we're also given a warning about the person who wants to uh, do some damage to God's church. And we're... We're given the picture that the church is actually a temple. The reason the church is a temple is because you've got the spirit in you if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to collectively or together we have the spirit of God in our presence because we've all got the spirit within us. Uh, and so Paul calls the church the temple. In the past God's Shekinah glory, his spirit filled the temple uh, and now he's saying the new temple is well, certainly Jesus, but it's also us, because God dwells in us by his spirit. And he goes and makes the point that if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Why is he saying that? Why is he giving this warning? Well, it seems that God wants us to know that his church is important. He doesn't want it destroyed. And so the warning is that if anyone's going to destroy God's church, God will destroy him. Well, to sum up, we have a message here that challenges us to hold on to uh, God's wisdom, to actually see the world through the lens of, of uh, God's wisdom in Christ, not to get waylaid by uh, boasting about men, thinking that somehow if we um, put our trust in, I don't know, the next great Houdini evangelist who will come to town, Mark Driscoll or Billy Graham, whoever it is, somehow that's going to be the, the key to the future. No, we need to trust in God to change people's hearts. 
even with respect to missions, we can't think that you know the next big thing is going to be a quick fix to change people's hearts. We need to keep on being active like uh, Paul was active in sharing the gospel. Paulus was active in building up the Christians. That's the way that ones and twos come to the Lord. So we need to forget the, the world's idea of wisdom and we need to continue to hold on to the meshes of the cross. Uh, like when you get on a roller coaster ride and you get those white knuckles trying to hang on to the thing. Well, we've got to be people who hold on to God's wisdom and continue to be uh, people focused on God to change hearts. So let's pray that um, we'll be people who hang on to God's wisdom and that God does change hearts, our hearts and other people's as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning for this passage which talks us about seeing the world from a different point of view. We thank you that uh, you've revealed uh, your hidden wisdom, that Jesus would be the one to die and rise for the sins of the whole world. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have in him. We thank you that you've worked in our lives by your spirit that we might accept these things. And Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to live faithfully to you now that we are your people. Lord, we also pray that you continue to change hearts, that we wouldn't put our trust in uh, men, but that we put our trust in you to give the growth. Uh, we pray that you would uh, change the hearts of people we're in touch with, who we share the gospel with. We pray that you'd help us to be active in reaching out. Uh, and we pray that you'd help us to be wise in the way that we live so that people may ask us for the reason for the hope that we have. Uh, please help us to persevere as your people uh, and to continue to see the world from your point of view and to hold on to that message. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.